Matthew chapter 2. Verses 10 and 11, I think, captures the heart of what we're looking at here. It says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray. Father, we saw last week that the Son of God came to save his people from their sins. Lord, we were able to see too this morning who've had their sins forgiven and then out of obedience were baptized, signaling that indeed your son has accomplished what he came to do. And Father, we see even in this text, foreigners, Gentiles from afar, who by faith in the promise and then by faith in the Son of God had their sins forgiven and the result was worship. We pray, Lord, today as we come to this text that you would provoke that same worship in the hearts of your people. And Father, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 3.11 indicates that the Scythians were a unique kind of barbarians. Now, here's what's interesting. I did not know this video that we just watched was going to feature the Ukraine. But the Scythians lived in what is known as modern-day Ukraine. And... And so the Scythians were considered a very barbaric people in the first century and even extending all the way back to the 5th century B.C. But by the time you get to 5th century A.D., there is a thriving evangelical presence, evangelical church in Scythia. And in Scythia in the 5th century A.D., there was a man named Dionysius they called the humble. Dionysius the humble or even Dionysius the insignificant, some called him, because he saw himself with this Christian grace as such a a humble person. But providentially, Dionysius became one of the most significant figures in church history. By the time you get to 500 AD, he had moved to Rome, and he was the one who proposed that the calendar system be changed to date from the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, in his calendar, the new year was March 25th because he believed that Jesus had been born at that time. And so for a thousand years, the Christian new year, if you will, was March the 25th. And it wasn't moved until January the 1st until Pope Gregory the 13th reformed the calendar in 15. 
Of course, most historians believe today that Jesus was actually born 4 B.C. But the point is the symbol. The symbol is the point here. And the symbol signifies that the axis, the center, the hub of all of human history is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are effective symbols like that one, and there are failed ones. For instance, centuries before Dionysius the Humble, you have the very evil emperor Diocletian. In fact, he is perhaps the most evil emperor in history. He was the one that that issued this nation or empire-wide persecution of Christians starting in uh, the early 4th century. But he proposed that history be scheduled around the time of the beginning of his position as emperor, 284. That failed. Then you have the Jewish false messiah, Simeon Bar Kokhba, who proposed the same thing. That failed. The supporters of the French Revolution proposed that history be scheduled around the beginning of the French Revolution, 1792. That failed. In fact, all attempts have been futile. So even if secularists today want to have us forget the coming of Jesus by their common era, C.E., and before common era, B.C.E., most people recognize that and are not buying it. Why is that? It's quite simple. When Jesus Christ came... It changed everything. Uh, As Isaiah prophesied, the the government of God would be upon his shoulders. Indeed, as the one who would sit on the throne of David, his kingdom would have no end. He would be and will be the king of kings. And even the way we date history testifies to that fact, doesn't it? And that rule, though, has provoked various reactions through the ages, the rule of the true king. And all of these reactions reflect where our ruling king resides. Every single person has a ruling king. There is something that rules your heart, something or someone. And that's why a crucial question everyone must ask every day of their life is, where is your king? Where is your king? Who, what is ruling your heart today? In fact, that was the question that was asked in a very literal sense in the first four verses of Matthew 2. These are, so it's a literal question, but I think there is a figurative, spiritual idea behind this question. Where is the king? Now, notice with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us much about these wise men. Uh, Christmas cards show us three kings, and we sing about three kings. But there's a couple of inaccuracies with John Henry Hopkins' otherwise solid Christmas carol. First of all, The text doesn't tell us there were three. It says there were wise men. 
So we know that there were at least more than one. May have been two, may have been 20. We don't know. doesn't tell us. The reason uh, we have proposed that it was three is that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we have no clue how many there were. There may have been a bunch of them. We just don't know. Secondly, they weren't kings. They were wise men. They were magi. Uh, Many have proposed that they were kings because they brought expensive gifts. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they were royalty. And so there are not three kings in this story. Sorry to disappoint you. But there are two. There are two kings in this story. One being Herod and one being Jesus. And these wise men came in the days of both, Herod and Jesus. Now history tells us that that Herod is one of the most able administrators in history. Remarkable administrator in that regard. But he's also one of the most violent rulers who's ever walked the earth. He killed uh, many members of his own court, including his wife and his son, all to secure his rule and his sovereignty. And And it's this background that kind of reveals... How dangerous the question that was posed in verse 2. Notice in verse 2. So the, the wise men came saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now as mysterious as the wise men are, so is the star that guides them. We don't know how this happened. Um, the text doesn't tell us. Maybe a star actually came down into our atmosphere and kind of served as a first century GPS system uh, for these wise men. We don't know. We just know that it was a miraculous phenomenon. And I have no problem with that. Um, I have no problem with that because we have a God who created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo. We have a God who was able to bring about a birth through virgin conception and a God who raised a man bodily from the dead and a God who's able to save sinners. I have no problem with this being a a miracle. And it certainly was that. But one thing that's very apparent to me is that these wise men were familiar with an ancient prophecy. It was about a 1,400-year-old prophecy from Numbers 24 from a man named Balaam. Now, we could say a whole lot about Balaam, but just listen to this prophecy in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. In other words, I I, I see one who's coming, but, but he's not coming now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter, that is a ruling staff, shall arise out of Israel. It shall crush, that is that scepter, shall crush the the forehead of Moab. What does that sound like? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And Moab was the seed of the serpent. And break down all the sons of Sheph. Edom shall be dispossessed. Now, Balaam was from the east. These wise men were from the east. 
And so it is possible that Balaam's words prophesied 1,400 years earlier had been preserved in the, in the culture from where the, the wise men resided. Whether it was, um, we just don't know. But it's also possible that these wise men were from Babylon. In fact, when we looked at our study in Daniel, we saw that there were wise men who were very present in that city and in that kingdom. So maybe uh, they had learned about this prophecy from the Jews who then resided in Babylon. Remember, uh, the Jews were brought into captivity and they, and they made their homes in Babylon. And many stayed even after uh, Zerubbabel led 50,000 back into the homeland. So perhaps these wise men had, had heard about this prophecy from the Jews who had remained in their homeland. We just don't know. Maybe they were from Persia. We just don't know. It's not important to us. Matthew would have communicated to us if it was important. But the one thing we need to see here is what the star meant. Balaam is talking about what will happen to all rival kings, all rival monarchies, when the real king and kingdom comes. This is the kingdom of the true king before whom all, even the most stellar kings in the history of the world will seem like flickering shadows in comparison. Now, I do believe the initial fulfillment of this prophecy was David because that's exactly what David did. He struck down Moab, not to mention Edom. And by the way, Edom was the ancestry country of Herod's father. Herod's father was a full-blooded Edomite, and so Herod was a partial or half Edomite. He was half Edomite, and he was half Jewish. I find that quite remarkable. But Matthew is also intended, he's intending to show us here that the Gentiles from the very beginning are streaming to Israel. So we saw the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 60. We read that this morning. We, we have seen that the Abrahamic covenant intended that the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. We're seeing that from the very beginning. Another point that Matthew is making here is that Jesus isn't just the king and the savior of the Jews. He is that. But he is also the king and the savior of the world. And this would have been very unsettling for one who was half Jew and half Gentile in King Herod, and one who ruled over both Jews and Gentiles. Notice with me in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the Lord daily uses people in our lives to expose what's ruling our hearts. That's one of the purposes of people. (laughs) God uses them to expose what's ruling our hearts. Self-rule is the default rule of the human heart. We know that from 2 Corinthians 5. Herod was a half-Jew... But he was not a believer 
or he would have rejoiced when these wise men posed that question. But instead, it says he was troubled. Likely jealous, likely insecure, angry, bitter. All of these carnal emotions that flow out of a heart that is ruled by the king of self. You see, if you want to be king and someone else comes along and does not recognize you as the king that you want to be, something has to give. That's what we see here. Only one person can sit on an ultimate throne. Only one can have ultimate rule. And in every human heart, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule. That's the human dilemma. In every human heart, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule. And that heart is threatened by anything that may compromise its sovereignty. That's behind most divisions in churches. And it's behind perhaps all marital problems. It's when the little King Herod of the human heart wants to assert rule in a particular situation. According to Colossians 1.21 and Romans 8.7, where it says we are alienated by nature and enemies in our minds by wicked works. Romans 8.7 says the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. According to these texts, there's a natural tendency and a natural enmity of the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. There's a natural enmity of the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. It rises up even when minor claims are made over us. But Jesus' claims of authority are ultimate. And somehow Herod recognized that. And notice all Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps they are afraid of what Herod might do. um, What will be his reaction? They had seen him in action before. Perhaps that's part of it. But you, you would think that the people who had the oracles of God, as Paul, as Paul describes them in Romans 3, the people who had the book that told about the coming Messiah, you think they would have been looking for him and would have themselves made the pilgrimage to where he would be born. But that is not what you find. Jerusalem is caught off guard, and certainly Herod. And so fearing the news brought by the wise men, what Herod is going to do is he's going to gather all the spiritual leaders uh, in Israel. Notice in verse 4, And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, while Herod gladly embraced the title King of the Jews, and he certainly embraced that. His knowledge of the Hebrew Bible was severely lacking. And so he calls in these experts who knew their Bibles. 
And he asked them where the Christ was going to be born. Where's the true king? That's the question. And that question is the most disturbing question that the human heart could ever embrace to consider, at least in the natural state, because naturally we want to remain on the throne of our lives. Now, these chief priests included the high priest and the heads of the 24 divisions of the priest, and the scribes were the the interpreters of the law. They taught the law. They applied the law. And so they knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. It's very likely they didn't even have to turn in their Bibles to be able to to answer that question. That brings us to the, the second question this text is answering. What does the Scripture say concerning the Messiah? We see in verses 5 to 6 the answer. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler. They turn to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And then they quote 2 Samuel 5, verse 2, Who will shepherd my people Israel. And so... These spiritual leaders who know their Bibles, it's likely many of them would have had the, what they call the Tanakh, uh, the Old Testament scriptures as we know them, the Hebrew scriptures. They would have had them memorized. Uh, they knew that this Messiah figure would come as a shepherd and he would be born in Bethlehem. But what's surprising is they do nothing with their answer. They were like those that Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And there are many today who know their Bibles. They are informed, but they're not transformed. I've seen them in seminary life. People who can parse every verb, who can lay out a comprehensive church history, And know their theology, but they've never been warmed by the gospel of Christ. So Matthew's point here, I think there is a real possibility for religious people who've been in church their entire lives and who know all the stories and who know the text, but who have never been spiritually made alive. They're still spiritually blind. And think about these spiritual leaders and contrast them with the wise men who, from the song we sing, who traversed afar over field and fountain, moor and mountain. But don't think that the wise men responded and the spiritual leaders did not respond. Every single person who's confronted with God's truth, God's word, responds every time. You either respond in faith or you respond in unbelief. There is no gray. Indeed, that brings us to the third question this text is answering. We've looked at where's the king, what does the scripture say, but now how should we respond? That's verses 7 and 12. 
to 12. And we see two different responses here. Notice in verse 7. Having heard what the Bible says. Verse 7. Herod summoned the wise men secretly. And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. You would think. Having beheld this miracle. And hearing what the scriptures say. That this man would have been changed. But. Miracles don't change anyone. That's how hard the heart is. That's how darkened our spiritual eyes are. It takes a miracle to respond in faith. It takes regeneration to respond in faith. It takes the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to respond in faith. Herod certainly had not experienced that. It's remarkable. In verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child... And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's a lie. That's a ruse. But Herod's response is irrational. Now, why do I say it's irrational? Because if the wise men are wrong, then what does it matter? But if they are right, why resist? But self-rule is always irrational. Recognize that. It's become our new normal since the fall. But it's irrational. Self-rule. Self-rule is behind your tendency towards paranoia. Self-rule is behind your tendency towards jealousy and insecurity. And the fear of man. It's behind your discontentment that just plagues you. Oh, if I was only in a better circumstance, a better relationship. It's behind your ingratitude. It's behind your idolatry. It's insane. And we see that with Herod. Now, at this point, the wise men don't yet know that Herod is deceiving them. And so they make their way to Bethlehem. And in so doing, we are given the right response to the word of God and to his king. Notice with me in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Kind of reminds me of the the fire by night and the cloud by day. It's almost like another exodus taking place. Um, But it's remarkable because... As they go, this star reappears and and miraculously leads them to Jesus. That's all we can tell about the star. It's a miraculous phenomenon. But notice in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't think it's the miracle that's provoking the joy. It's the word of God. Because again, I believe with most 
that Numbers 24, as we read, is informing their pilgrimage to Bethlehem. They are rejoicing that the king is here. They're not rejoicing at some miraculous phenomenon. All right? In verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Note the order there. They beheld the king. They beheld the son of God and then they worshiped. This is the restoration of sanity. This is the restoration. We were created to worship. And we all worship. If we don't worship the true and living God. Through his king. We worship self. All right. Which is insane. And it's behind all of those carnal emotions. That just rise up in your heart every day. This is the restoration of sanity. This is God making all things new. They worshipped. Of course, an indication of true worship is glad benevolence. Notice in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother. They fell down in worship, then opened their treasures. They offered him gifts. Remember, when grace comes down, and these wise men have experienced this grace. They have, they have primarily experienced it through promise. They've been reading their Old Testament, I believe, or someone has been sharing the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. And through the means of the word and through the means of these promises, they've experienced the grace of God by faith. And so they worship. And and then notice, when grace comes down, gratitude goes up. A person who has experienced grace is a grateful person. You can have a conversation two minutes with a person and know if that person is walking in the grace of God. Because people who are walking in the grace of God are grateful people. There's no exception to that rule. And people who are ungrateful people are who are not walking in the grace of God. Grace comes down, gratitude goes up, but notice, generosity flows out. Again, notice, they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts. I've been here almost nine years, and I have never preached a sermon series on giving and on finances. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to do that. I do address giving. I do address finances because we preach through books. And it's inevitable that you're going to deal with those issues. But I have a strong conviction that when people hear and behold the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't have to be told to give. It's the knee-jerk response. We've seen that here. It's been remarkable. The sacrificial giving of the people of Fisherville. You see it here as well. Taxes are required by government. 
Because if they did not make these taxes compulsory, no one would give to the government. Even if you love your senators and even if you love your congressmen and even if you love your president, you would not give taxes voluntarily to the government. But the first tribute that came to this king, King Jesus, was a tribute from foreigners who were under no obligation to give anything to him. That's just the knee-jerk response. Grace comes down. Gratitude goes up. Generosity flows out. And one of the real indicators of whether you're walking in the grace of God is that your finances flow in the direction of the kingdom of Christ. Now, as far back as the early church, many believe, and I tend to believe this, I really do, that there is symbolic significance to these gifts. Now, perhaps these wise men were giving in a manner that revealed far greater than anything they understood. But I believe there is symbolic significance to these gifts. For instance, gold. Notice it says in the text, they opened their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was the metal of kings. According to Seneca, a Roman writer and a contemporary of Jesus. He wrote at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. He, he writes that when people came into the presence of kings, they brought pricely, costly gifts. In fact, gold was so scarce and so costly that it was associated particularly with royalty. For instance, in 1 Kings chapter 10, when Queen of Sheba visited the son of David, Solomon, what did she bring? Loads and loads of gold. I believe that these wise men are confessing by this gift. Here lies the king. The king of the world. And then this language of frankincense. They brought frankincense to the king. It was also a symbolic gift. It was used in the making of the perfume for the altar. What was the altar? Literally what the word altar means is slaughter. It was the place of slaughter. It's where the sacrifices were altered, uh, are offered to satisfy God's divine justice on sin. And here they are bringing the frankincense not to an altar but to a person. This would be the very embodiment of of the once for all altar. And then they bring myrrh. Myrrh was the main ingredient. You can see this from Exodus 30 verse uh, 23. Myrrh was the main ingredient in the anointing oil for the priest. I don't think that's a coincidence. So not only does the gold reflect that this one Lying in the manger 
would be a king. He would also be a priest. He would be the place where God's divine justice would be ultimately satisfied. The altar. Incidentally, later Jesus would refuse myrrh mixed with wine. Myrrh also deadened pain. And in Mark 15, it tells us he was offered myrrh mixed with wine, and, or, or wine mixed with myrrh, and he rejected it. Why? Because he came to experience the full judgment, the full wrath of God on our sins. And then later, Nicodemus used 75 pounds to, of myrrh to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Isn't that interesting? So I'm not sure. I don't know if these wise men understood all that they were doing. Oftentimes you see in Scripture, these, these people speak greater than they know. But these three gifts reflected glorious realities about this person and what he would come to do. And having worshipped him, notice in verse 12, and being warned in a dream, the Lord protected them, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Scripture says nothing else about them. This is all we know about these wise men But what it records becomes an enduring example for the church the last 2,100 years. They were true worshipers who certainly took that gospel back to their homeland. Worship always precedes witness and witness always follows worship. But they're not the only examples in this text. Examples can be both positive and negative. And our text, and we'll close here, gives us three examples of ways we can respond to Christmas. And to more importantly, to what Christmas represents. The coming of the King. The incarnation of the Son of God. Emmanuel. God for us. God with us, son of God, son of David, son of Abraham. The first way we can respond, we see it with Herod, agitation. Agitation or anger, you might say. Now, not many of us know people like Herod, but they exist in the world. You need to understand that in many parts of the world, there are people like Herod. We're kind of living in Disney World here. And when you live in Disney World, it's hard to be a fervent, committed believer. Because there's nothing, palatably speaking, that you you sense any kind of desperation. It's not dangerous to be a Christian in America. At least not right now. But in many parts of the world, it is. For instance, just two weeks ago today, Chinese officials went into a church and arrested a, a pastor, an evangelical pastor... And 100 members, um, they, they cut off all their social media. They, they tore out their phone lines. They pillaged. They, they ransacked their homes. And then police officials um, tried to force them to sign a pledge that they would never gather together again. That's happening 
in China. Jesus is a real threat to anyone who understands the implications that he's the only king. But this physical violence isn't the only form of agitation. We need to understand that as well. We see agitation towards Jesus' rule when we're resentful or bitter towards someone else. I've seen that here at Fisherville. One person resents and mistreats another person and is bitter towards that person. And every time he talks to that person, it's negative. That's just reflecting a heart of self-rule. That person that they're bitter at hasn't bowed down to their demands. Their little King Herod in their hearts. And so they become resentful. It's present in marriage. When you're always perpetually bickering at one another. That's a little King Herod coming out. You're not bowing to my rule. I'm not bowing to your rule. That's not present. When you have two people whose hearts are ruled by King Jesus. Where's your king? That's the question. Everyone has one. Who's ruling you today? So agitation is one response to Christmas. A second response is apathy. We see that with the religious leaders. They knew their Bibles, but they couldn't even go six miles out of interest to see if this was the one. We see it even with the people of Jerusalem in verse 2. And the seed of apathy is in every human heart. Why do you think, and let me preface this, sometimes, sometimes the grief of a situation can be so heavy, it feels impossible to cry out. That's why the, we have the Holy Spirit who intercedes in our weaknesses. Isn't that a glorious truth, Romans 8? You see it in the Psalms. The psalmist, why do you stand afar off, God? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I think that's why Jesus had seven words on the cross. You don't see Jesus speaking a great deal on the cross. He gave seven words because of the pain and the suffering. Not just physically, but spiritually. Being abandoned by the Father at that moment. But oftentimes, the reason... It's hard for us to pray. As Joshua said so eloquently this morning, God's boring to us. He's boring. And it's boring to talk to him. That's apathy. Why do you think it's so difficult to concentrate on the most glorious person possible? Why is it that when God answers your prayers, you say, I will never forget this, Lord. And within days or weeks, you have forgotten it. Why is it you, you tell the Lord, I'm not going to say this. I'm not going to do this again. And then within days, you're saying it and you're doing it again. Apathy. Indeed, there are religious people who pack pews every Sunday. Who come out of a habit, out of a, a cultural expectation, but they come 
bored and they leave bored. And then they live through the week as if Jesus is only some kind of EMS provider. He's there for me in my emergencies. But they don't live as if he's enthroned as king and ruler over their hearts and over their mouths and over their attitudes towards other people. But know this. King Jesus is not indifferent to your indifference. And that is the purpose of Christmas. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because he's not indifferent to your indifference. It's why he came. He came to to crush it, to put it underneath his feet. Indeed, the third response... Agitation, apathy, the third response to Christmas is adoration. We see that with these wise men. Now, I want you to think about this as we close. In in a world where you can travel the globe in one day, you don't need to lose sight of the fact that these men traveled likely over a thousand miles. The danger the difficulty, the demand that would have been required for these wise men to make the journey to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. That's remarkable. We're driving a thousand miles tomorrow in a car. And I don't look forward to it. Look forward to seeing family, but I don't look forward to that. These men men did it on foot. Why? Their hearts were fueled by adoration. And so, as we approach 2019, their example should challenge us to ask ourselves, where is our self-denial? What diligence do we show in worshiping the King? What does our faith in Jesus cost us? What does it cost you in the home? When you've worked all day and you're tired and you tend to be fleshly and carnal when you're tired, what does it cost you? What is it going to cost you in the church when there is someone in the church that gets on your everlasting nerve and yet Jesus died for that person and he died that you might not despise that person but love that person? What will it cost you? And we are also reminded, as we consider what these wise men did, there's only one Savior. You say, well, that's narrow-minded. No, it's not narrow-minded, but truth is always narrow. You believe that too when you're up on a hospital operating table. You believe that physician better believe in narrow truth. When you're in a plane, you better, you're, you're hoping that pilot believes in narrow truth. And you're trusting your banker believes that truth is narrow. There's only one Savior. Acts 4.12, there is no other name in heaven by which a person can be saved. And so on this Sunday before 
Christmas. Do you recognize that? I'm assuming that in a crowd this large, there are people today here who have not followed the wise man and trusted in the Son of God. But here's the glory of Christmas. The wise men were sinners, just like everyone else in this room. But these wise men had their sins forgiven, and out of that came worship. No matter what you have done, here's the the whole reality behind Christmas. Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to take away our sins. And if you will confess that you're a sinner, not just a mistake maker, not just a person who, who's a, a victim to difficult circumstances, but a full-blown sinner, and that your sin deserves judgment, and that God, by His grace and mercy and wisdom, has made a way to judge your sin by judging His Son in your place. The Bible says, if you believe that, your sins will be forgiven. You will have a new status as son or daughter of God. That's the glory of Christmas. And that is an invitation that the Scripture gives to you if you will only repent and believe in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for, yes, the positive examples of the wise men. Thank you even for the negative examples of Herod and the religious leaders. But ultimately, we thank you for Jesus who came to take away our sins. Christmas means the crushing of the serpent's head. And I thank you for the two baptisms, evidences that the head has been crushed of the enemy, the evil one. And Lord, I just pray that as God's people adjourn today, we would adjourn with hearts of adoration. And that we repent of those areas that reflect little King Herod is ruling on our hearts. And Father, if there's any who've never trusted in Jesus today, what a beautiful time to be saved two days before Christmas. We pray that they would be a day of salvation for many in the room. And we ask these things in the name of Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God, King Jesus. Amen. As we